Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Deadhead Cannabis Show. This is Jim Marty reporting from Lama, Colorado. I've got my par- my partner, Larry Mishkin, up in Chicagoland. How you doing, Larry? Jim, I'm doing just fine. Thank you. Always nice to hear from you. It's a uh, it's a rainy day here in Chicago, which you know maybe is a good thing to get these every now and then. As long as my basement doesn't flood, I'll be happy. Um, but yeah, it's uh, everything here is 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 going just fine. Um, and in fact, we got a recent uh, announcement from the uh, the marijuana group up at uh, in Springfield telling us that it looks like the uh, winners of the dispensary licenses are going to be announced either by the end of the first week or the beginning of the second week of July. And they're already warning us that in some of the districts, there may be ties. And when they have ties, there's going to be a tiebreaker, which is going to be conducted in August. Everybody's name will just be thrown into a hat and they'll pull out one name and that'll be the winner. Not the most ideal way to do it, but that's the way they're going to. Um, and then they also said that they did not experience as much of a delay scoring the uh, cultivation and processing applications and that those announcements should be coming relatively soon thereafter. So if, if they can really keep to that, that's a great thing for us. And it really pushes this program forward very quickly. Excellent. Well, that is good news. And are the um, dispensaries in downtown Chicago reopening? Yep. Yep, everything's getting back to normal. Um, you know, business is back as normal. Uh, we're, we're not quite 100% out of everything yet. The courts don't open until uh, the middle of next month. But uh, generally speaking, I've been going back to my office a couple of days a week now. And uh, it looks like, you know, things are starting to pick up again. Um, you know, and quite frankly, in Illinois, we haven't had, at least up till now, uh, up to this point, uh, any more of a surge. So, uh, you know, we're certainly very grateful for that, but everybody's keeping their eyes open and, you know, just being careful just in case. Okay. Well, very good. And um, so what's, we have some things to talk about on the cannabis front. Yes. A whistleblower came forward and had some concerns about the Department of Justice related to marijuana mergers and acquisitions. Yes, that's right, Jim. And as you and I were talking about before the show, the problem is, of course, that everybody, it seems, in Washington, D.C. is politically motivated one way or the other. And so, you know, when a whistleblower comes forward, the first thought is, does the whistleblower have a motive other than what the issue that they're actually raising is all about? In this case, maybe uh, he does, maybe he doesn't. But the nature of the allegation being made uh, is particularly concerning to me. Uh, you know, as you and I often discuss, Jim, uh, trying to talk politics these days is a, is a path to danger. And if you don't have a couple of good fatties right next to you, you could really be getting yourself in trouble. Um, but the one thing I will talk on politically is things as they relate to the marijuana industry. And certainly one of the things that you and I have both uh, always found to be uh, a blessing, if you will, is that this, for the most part, seems to be a very bipartisan issue. And uh, we talk about Cory Gardner from Colorado and other Republican uh, senators who are strong supporters of the cannabis industry and the Safe Banking Act, which passed the House with strong bipartisan support. And so I typically do not look at anything that happens in the cannabis industry uh, on the political level. Uh, I, I just try to keep it focused on what's best for the industry, what's best for my clients, what's best for my business and everything like that. The allegations against Bill Barr are that when uh, 
some cannabis mergers tried to go through, including one that involved Pharmacan based out of Illinois. So particularly near and dear to us here in Illinois with MedMen, uh, they ultimately did not close that merger. And one of the reasons cited was because they couldn't get the necessary regulatory approval. And now we're hearing stories from insiders in the Justice Department uh, that words come down from what they say the fifth floor, meaning Bill Barr's office, uh, that these deals should be subject to uh, uh, extra tough scrutiny. And they cited examples of requesting volumes and volumes of documents, which just weren't ever going to be necessary to the review that they were doing. And the idea was to make it difficult for these mergers uh, to get the necessary regulatory approval to proceed forward. And as we know, that the MedMen Pharmacan deal wound up falling apart in certain respects uh, and in no small measure because of this. So to me, it doesn't matter, uh, you know, if, if somebody's a Republican or if somebody's a Democrat or, or what they are, if they're getting in the way of, of marijuana uh, and, and the industry moving forward, that's a problem for me. Um, and, and quite frankly, as a, as, a, as a person who has clients who aspire to be like the Pharmacans and the MedMens of the world, uh, they're obviously very concerned by this in terms of what kind of treatment can we expect if and when we get to that level uh, and we try to uh, implement our exit strategy, as it were, um, are, are we going to find ourselves uh, in all of our hard work kind of being pushed aside because the Attorney General of the United States is now telling us uh, in no unexplicit terms uh, that he's just not a fan of the marijuana industry. And, um, you know, my hope is that uh, Attorney General Barr can put his personal preferences aside and can see that, uh, you know, this is an industry whose time has come, all of the value in it that you and I always talk about, Jim, and it would really be wonderful to see some of these deals go through. Certainly uh, from your professional perspective over at Bridge West and me at the Hoban Law Group, uh, being able to make these deals happen is a great thing for us. It's really the culmination of a dream of taking this from a bunch of local people to now national and even international types of transactions. Right, right. Yeah, no, very well put on all that. And um, whether you support this administration or not, uh, I think everybody can agree that Bill Barr is a, a law and order guy. So when you come to him with a large merger, say, oh, yeah, and by the way, this is still federally illegal, but it's legal at the state level. Um, that's going to be a continuing problem uh, until that issue gets resolved. The conversations that you and I have had and continue to have is what will happen to the industry as we've known it for the last 10 years if the federal government suddenly made cannabis and cannabis products legal? You know, would we lose out to big pharma, big tobacco? Would the FDA show up at your door the next week? Um, so many unknowns. My opinion is, and it's just my opinion, is the, the best fix that I've seen is the States Act uh, put forward by Elizabeth Warren on the Democratic side in Senate and Cory Gardner, Republican senator from Colorado, because it doesn't change things at the federal level. So the worries that we have of big tobacco and the FDA and alcohol firearms showing up at your door. Um, you know, the States Act, all it does is say, it's still legal at the federal level, but the states can regulate cannabis as they want to. It's a very simple fix, and then it would avoid problems like we have with um, regulatory roadblocks for mergers and acquisitions. 
so anyway, that's my two bits on on this. Is yeah, you know, hey, we want to do this multi-billion-dollar merger. Is it okay, federal government? Oh, by the way, our product is still illegal at the federal level. Of course, it's, that's going to cause problems. So we'll see. You know, with all the social unrest that's going on this summer, you might just see a federal legalization bill fast track through Congress. You know, whether the Republican Senate will go along with it, that's another unknown. But um, I really think the most likely scenario is I don't see any major legislation getting passed between now and November. We'll see. And, and maybe that's for the best, because at least we still have our industry as we know it now for a while anyway. Well, I, I certainly agree with that part, Jim, and, and, and we do have it. And yes, uh, that's going to be the eternal question that all of us in the industry have to grapple with, which is, you know, do we want our cake and eat it too? And once the federal government comes in, whoever is the one that ultimately pulls the trigger and says, uh, we're going to treat it like CBD now and it's federally legal, what's that going to mean to the, the smaller clients that we've been working with and representing all this time? And when corporate America gets the green light uh, and big pharma gets the green light, will that really change things in a way that's going to ne negatively impact uh, you know, the people who have worked hard for the last 10 or 15 years to make this whole industry possible? Um, which again is one of the reasons why it's frustrating to not see these deals being allowed to go through right now um, because this is the heyday for this industry in terms of companies being run by smaller groups as opposed to big uh, 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 corporate America. And it's, you know, I have no problem seeing some of these people, uh, you know, make their fortunes in this industry as, you know, being the, uh, the early torchbearers, if you will, and who you know, have really carried us forward. Um, and, you know, I, I do recognize it's illegal federally. And yes, that certainly uh, anything that's illegal federally is going to always require a little bit of extra eyes at any federal level. But I, you know, conceptually just feel there's a big difference between that and what you and I both know to be government overkill. And, and, and both parties are guilty of it as, as a way to stop things that they don't like. And, uh, you know, I, I look at it more as a big government problem uh, than, a, than a partisan problem. Uh, and it's just the sense of, hey, uh, we're, you know, if you're going to stay out of the states and let the and let them basically operate, then you have to let them operate. This is the natural progression of an open marijuana market at the state level is that eventually people in the United States do this all the time in every industry, mergers and acquisitions. And we should be encouraging that um, it doesn't change anything on the federal level. It doesn't make uh, marijuana any more or less available to 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 the masses or anything like that. Um, it just allows the industry to really thrive. And for a law and order guy like Bill Barr, I think he would be thrilled because the other thing that it does is it puts the black market out of business. Um, so, but you're right, it's, it can be frustrating and hopefully uh, on a going forward basis, uh, you know, we'll get some agreement among the parties and everybody else and, and uh, we can get that safe, uh, that's the States Act passed because you're right, Jim. That's a wonderful bill. It's a great example of bipartisanship and how government can move this industry forward when they really want to. And I really feel like it protects the industry as it's evolved over the last 10 years and doesn't throw out a branch to big farm or big alcohol or big tobacco because it would still be technically illegal at the federal level. There would be no cross-border traffic between the states as far as shipping goes, um, although that could happen. 
you know, there's a lot of cross-border purchases right now, but it's mainly by the consumer. You know, I'm doing some work in Massachusetts. It's surrounded by states that are medical only. And so Massachusetts sits in the middle of all those medical only states has a thriving cross-border adult use market right now. So things are uh, still, you know, very much up in the air. Um, and I guess that's, that's the way you and I like it kind of, right? Yep. As long as they need us to sort it out, it's a good day. Yeah. All right. Um, so that's what's going on politically. Musically, um, they're starting to have shows in Denver. Our son Jack plays keyboards in a band called Swerve. Swerve, I always get the name mixed up. And, um, yeah, he's played at an event. There was 50, 75 people there uh, in Denver last week. Um, so we're Colorado's starting to open up. And our um, <clears throat> our new cases have been pretty steady. Our deaths are very low. Our hospitalizations are very low. So um, I was in downtown Denver last week, and the um, retail was thriving. Um, had dinner with clients at my uh, favorite steakhouse, uh, Elway's, where I've taken you out to dinner before, Larry. You have. It's quite a place. Very tasty. Yeah. So are the uh, restaurants in Chicago opening up? Slowly but surely. Uh, outdoor eating is very big right now. In fact, in, in downtown Chicago, uh, a couple of streets uh, in, in the in the restaurant area were, were, were closed off so that the, the restaurants could put more tables out on the streets to serve a larger uh, clientele. Uh, in the next week or two, we're going to enter the next phase, uh, which will then allow uh, more indoor dining, I think up to 25 and then eventually 50% capacity is what they're shooting for between now and the end of the summer. Yeah, they're doing that here too. They're uh, putting tables with umbrellas and chairs out in the parking areas and alleys behind the restaurants. Yep, yep, everywhere. It's, it's actually kind of interesting to see. But yeah, you know, and, and I appreciate it. It's nice to just see that, you know, people are trying hard. They're getting back out there. It's, I'm glad that restaurants are getting an opportunity to bring a little more business in the door. It hasn't been easy for them or anybody. And, you know, look, Jim, knock on wood, if we can just figure out a way to to, to help, you know, contain this uh, this problem and, and minimize the amount of sickness and everything else we get, that'll be a wonderful thing. Well, it seems like um, so many things are opening up now. Unfortunately, the last things that be, to get going are travel and entertainment. Right. Um, you know, entertainment, including sports. So looks like we'll have an abbreviated basketball playoffs, abbreviated baseball season. I've been thinking about that as these teams are getting back into their locker rooms and uh, working out, that there are some um, COVID positives popping up uh, among the players. Yes, there are. And my thought on that was, okay, well, I believe if you test positive, and you might have no something I don't know here, if you test positive, that just means you have to quarantine for 10 to 14 days, and then you're good to go. So in sports, that's really nothing more than a twisted ankle or regular sports injury if you have to sit out for a week or two. Is that your understanding of how that would work? Yeah, I think it is. As long as there's those 10 to 14 days, you don't exhibit any other signs of being sick, that they, they, they've determined that to be, you know, the satisfactory period. Now, 
I agree with you that, you know, in the overall scheme of things, that's 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 really nothing more than a traditional a stint on the disabled list that most baseball players go through in their lifetime. But the real issue is going to be, you know, when we get down to the end of the 60 game season and there's three teams vying for the playoffs and the star pitcher or star hitter on one of the teams tests positive. And all of a sudden he's got to be out for 14 days, which will put him out beyond, you know, the, the, the end of the regular season. And now the team is like, what do we do? You know, we, we think, look, he, he's asymptomatic. He doesn't have anything wrong with him. He just has tested positive. Now, I presume that they'll all follow the rules and those those players will have to sit out no different than if they broke their leg with two weeks left in the season. But that's those are the kind of situations where I think we're going to see how does it really work. Yeah, and that'll be a while because they're, um, the baseball playoffs are saying won't be till November now. Right, exactly. So um, exactly. that'll be interesting. And the fans, it's going to start, baseball is going to start without the fans. Um, I'm hoping that they that changes as the season progresses, so we can get to some baseball games. Uh, I heard um, Crane Kenny, he's the president of the Chicago Cubs, on the radio earlier today, and he was saying that the Cubs have a plan uh, to eventually be able to get as much as 30 to 40 percent of the capacity filled uh, between now and the end of the season. They don't know if they'll ever be able to go beyond that, but they're working with the city to put plans in place for. Uh, fans entering the ballpark and, you know, to be able to spread out the people in the seats throughout the ballpark uh, as much as possible and rules for the lines in the bathroom and everything else. And, you know, Hey, listen, if, if they can figure out a way to make it safe or at least, you know, reasonably safe, it's not a summer without a baseball game or two. Yeah. I look forward to getting back to Coors Field myself and it would seem that as we learn to live with this virus, people will make their own decisions. You know, they might not have more than 30 or 40% of the normal people who want to go to a game because some people will choose to self-quarantine and some people will say, well, I, I don't really worry about it. I'm going to go to the ball game. So I, that's what I see evolving is a lot more personal choice in how people handle social distancing, baseball games. Like I said, there was... <clears throat> A concert of young people that my son played, I said, were they social distancing? Were they wearing masks? No, no, they were shoulder to shoulder, no masks. But, you know, young people have very little um, to fear from this virus, according to the statistics. Well, it, right, <laughs> except with them, it's never a question so much of what's going to happen to them, except for the fact that they go and visit their grandparents. You know, and that's that's where we always have to be careful, but... You know, having said that, you know, just like sports live music is, you know, feels like a necessity, especially in times like these. And, you know, we've had a lot of opportunity. Uh, thank goodness. I mean, can you imagine if this was 20 years ago before there was Zoom and any of this other stuff? You know, all we would be able to do is turn on our FM radio and and hear whatever they chose to play to fill the void. But now we're overwhelmed with choices on social media to see all of these bands, whether it's um, you know, re, re, replays of prior concerts or now a lot of bands are going into venue, you know, famous rock venues and playing shows that are being taped without an audience in front of them. And um, in fact, you and I even discussed that a little bit, Jim, too, which is, you know, for a band like the Grateful Dead, that was such an interactive band. I wonder what it's like for them, you know, what it would be like for Dead and Company to say, OK, we're going to we're going to go play a series of concerts and we're going to play them in an empty venue and then we'll just, you know, we'll webcast them around the country. So everybody can kind of feel like they're at a grateful dead concert. 
but the band really feeds off that energy. And I had mentioned to you that uh, a few years ago, the dead released a, um, uh, a, a video. It was about a 25 minute video of the dead sitting around in a studio, but they were playing tunes, uncle John's band, throwing stones, one or two others. And of course, you know, it's the dead. They played them very, very nicely, but it felt more like I was listening to an album than, you know, the live dead experience, you know, the live, I don't know how to describe it. You know, there, there's like that, that, that level of energy, almost like electric energy that's kind of surging through the crowd. And when the band really gets cranking, that energy shot out to everybody gets cranked up too, and the crowd really reacts to it. And then the band reacts to it. And, you know, they, they really feed off of one another. And when they don't have that live crowd in front of them, it, it just feels like it, it's not quite the same. Do you agree with that? Oh, yeah. No, I, I miss it terribly. I think a lot about Red Rocks and I can't wait to get up there. Um, this would have been widespread panics weekend there with three shows. So um, it'll come back. I'm not sure when. Maybe we'll get some shows this fall. But um, in any event, like I said, I, I think, you know, we know a lot more about this virus now than we did three or four months ago. So I think we just, like I said, till we get a vaccine, we'll, we'll learn to live with it. Um, anyway, um, closing out here with some musical talk. Um, you had mentioned maybe speaking about um, the best albums of all time. Uh, you had a little story about your son, I think, didn't you, Larry? I, yeah, you know, it, it, it's funny how um, people are, are, are finding ways to fill up this time. And, you know, like I've, you know, you and I have talked about with everything going on in the industry. For me, it's just been work as normal, just doing it from home instead of the office. But for my kids, it's always, you know, trying to find something new and they all are looking in their own way. My oldest son, Matthew, who's uh, really uh, taken a strong interest in fish and and uh, the dead to the extent that he can. Um, very interesting. About a month or two ago, he texted me and he asked me to send him a list of, you know, basically my top 50 classic rock albums of all time. And, and he and a buddy of his wanted to do a, a deep dive during this downtime of theirs and go back and listen to as many of these, you know, kind of rock defining albums, uh, at least as I saw them, you know, that, that they could, and, you know, really begin to get a little taste for the, the foundation and the understanding of it. And what I found, Jim, was what I thought might take me a long time, wound up taking me no time at all. And before I knew it, I had a list of about 75 albums going on close to 100. Uh, and when I went back and told my son, he said, that's okay, just send me the whole list and we'll make our way through eventually. He, but then he caught me off guard and he said, just tell me what your top five are. And, it, you know, it really got me thinking. And I was like, I, you know, these are all such great albums. Boy, you know, if I was going away, you know, to a desert island and I can only take five of them with me, which five would it be? And so I, you know, I sat down and I spent some time really going over it. And, you know, what I found was that it, it didn't turn out to be all that hard. I, you know, when I went band by band and said, you know, does this band have an album that's that's like been life-defining for me or anything like that and before I knew it my first four fell right into place and then the I kind of had a revolving cast for my last one which is I know kind of a cheap way out and not really a top five but I, I you know it, it just got too tough but for me you know in, in no particular order uh, and this is just my own personal uh, opinions as to albums that I not only think are like the greatest of all time but that really had the biggest impact on on rock and roll. So uh, one of them is the Rolling Stones' Exile on Main Street. 
One of them is uh, the talking heads remain in light. One of them is the velvet undergrounds loaded. One of them is the who's who's next. And then when I got to the end, I thought, well, gee, I hadn't mentioned a Grateful Dead album yet. So my first response was to take American Beauty and Working Man's Dead and already cheat by making the two albums into a final 5A and B selection. But the minute I did that, I realized that I had left off a couple of others that to me are as integral as any of the ones I just named, including Purple Rain or Eat a Peach, or I could probably come up with two or three albums by Pink Floyd that um, you know, fall on that list. Well, of course, the yeah, dark side of the moon would have to be at least on a top 10 list, if not a top five. Yep. But um, yeah, I'm with you on, you know, who's next? I was thinking of that myself, but of course, Quadrophenia and Tommy fall right in there too, because I, I love the rock operas. Absolutely. Um, for me, uh, probably number one for me, as much as I do love The Grateful Dead and uh, yeah, it's the 50th anniversary of Working Man's Dead and um, American Beauty, both released the same year in 1970 when I was 14. <laughs> I was nine. But uh, I think my number one of all time is The Beatles Abbey Road Side 2. You know, I, look, I can't argue with you. And that's the other thing I realized that I didn't put a Beatles album on there, but my explanation for that was there's too many Beatles albums to put on there. Right. You know, and, and the Beatles almost fall into their own category, but Abbey Road has to be a top five Beatle album, if not a top three. And side two of Abbey Road is indeed one of my favorite. Uh, if I'm going to put a, an actual album on a record player, that's a good side to pick. Yes, because, you know, most Beatles songs are, are three to four minutes. That side two to Abbey Road, is one of the few times they really jam. Ringo gets a drum solo, so it really flows beautifully. It does, you know, and, and that, the White Album is, is such a wonderful album. Let It Be is such a wonderful album. Rubber Soul, Revolver, I mean, you know, it, it, every single one of those albums, you could say, was, you know, was, was, was genre-defining in its own way. Um, it, yeah, it's just great stuff. So, so you know, hence I, I said, okay, well, fine. My top five is spilling over into my top 10, which spilled over into my top 20. And before I knew it, I was almost at 100. Um, but what's been great is that my son's been listening to all of them. And then he writes back and gives me his thoughts on each album, which song he likes on the album. And then I'll go back and say, okay, well, now that you've listened to it, here's my three favorite songs off of these albums or whatever. So it, it's it's been a lot of fun just to, you know, to go back and, and revisit all that music some of which I haven't even listened to in a long time. But I have to tell you, Jim, it's a great way, uh, you know, to really reach out and bond with your children. Um, and, you know, I know you and I have talked about it, especially with your son and his musical talents playing in a in a fish cover band and, and my boys who all have such a strong interest in the dead and fish and all of that. And, uh, you know, once again, we were in St. Louis this past weekend uh, to be with my father for Father's Day. And at one point, uh, my my nephew was looking for something in the in the, the shelving that my dad has in his tv room and he opened it up and there was all a big stack of my father's albums in there and so we went in and we started looking at all the albums and i i can't i wish i could tell you that there was one album i saw it was all classical music and broadway show tunes and you know he loved it and good for him but there's nothing in there that i would have ever wanted to sit down and listen to and yet my kids can't get enough of my music right right yeah, mine too. Uh, we always put on some good dinner music last weekend for Father's Day. 
So um, well, this has been a, a great discussion, a very interesting podcast. We covered a lot of ground from reopening to federal legislation on cannabis to best albums of all time. Um, I um, am going to uh, get ready to sign us off, Larry, unless you have something else. I do not, Jim. It, it has been a great show. It's always a pleasure talking with you. These are great issues to discuss both on the music side and the marijuana side. And by God, you give people a lot of stuff to ruminate over one night if they're sitting around enjoying the product. Um, I will look forward next week. Uh, the, the beauty of this technology and the great way that our producer, Dan Humiston, has us set up is that we can do this literally from anywhere. And so next week, my family's taking a vacation. We're going to, uh, we're going to head east to the Poconos in Pennsylvania and meet up with my son and his fiance, who are going to come down from Boston uh, and spend a few days with them. Uh, we're looking forward to doing that, but I will be uh, looking forward to and more than ready to broadcast from uh, Northeast Pennsylvania next week. Okay, and I will be taking a vacation the week of July 4th, and I will not have cell service because I will be descending the Green River through Desolation Canyon in Utah. Wow. And not only will I not have cell service, I won't even be bringing a watch for the five-day trip. Unbelievable. That sounds fantastic. What a great trip that's going to be. So this is Jim Marty saying over and out for the Deadhead Cannabis Show. Bye, Larry. Bye, Jim. Thanks. Have a great week, everyone. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, y'all. I'm Joe, host of Casually Baked the Podcast. If you're curious to explore the highly responsible side of cannabis, farming, and legalization, I'm here to help lighten the stigma and build your canna confidence. Download episodes now of Casually Baked the Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And journey with me through the evolving cannabis culture and discover how and why people like you are adding cannabis to their wellness toolkit. It's time to get casually baked.